Okay, let's just bow our hearts just one more time as we turn to God's word together, shall we? Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, we thank you that your word changes us. Lord, your word tells us of itself that it is living and powerful. And it can divide between that which is fleshly and that which is spiritual. And so, Father, this morning, help us to be able to see in our own lives the things that need to be changed. Help us, Lord, to be challenged by your word. And Lord, help us to be willing to allow you to speak to us. Father, give us ears that are ready to hear and hearts that are ready to receive. But Father, may we also be encouraged. Encouraged because we see your complete control of all things. And Father, if you manipulate and control the governments of this world, the kingdoms of this world, and the events of this world, Lord, how much more can we take confidence that you're in control of the details of our lives too? And so Father, may we be inspired, Lord, by your word encouraged, edified, equipped and ready to go out into this world in which you called us, Lord, into the various areas of ministry. So, Lord, just teach us now through your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We've come as far as the minor prophets. Now, once again, the minor prophets, this designation that's given to them, it's no uh, suggestion that that which they say is any less important or less significant. It's simply that the minor prophets fall into this category of their slightly smaller books. Now, in some senses, that's not entirely fair, um, because Daniel only has 12 chapters, and yet he's considered one of the major prophets. Um, But nevertheless, uh, you'll see some of these books have uh, 13 chapters and so on. So... um, But these books, incredible um, prophetic books, speaking of things in their own time, future from where they were, uh, but also speaking right into the days in which we live, uh, with incredible clarity as we'll see this morning. Now, just to give you some kind of indication of the time frame that we're looking at here, if we look at a, a chronological breakdown of the kings of Israel, so Israel of the northern kingdom, so we have King Saul's the first king of Israel, followed by David, and then David's son Solomon, um, the wisest man that ever lived, scripture tells us. But after Solomon, the kingdom divides. Uh, it's interesting in the book of Ecclesiastes, one of Solomon's questions in a sense that he poses uh, rhetorically is, you know, what am I going to leave, you know, when I leave all these things, when I move on, what's going to happen? You know, all the wisdom, all the knowledge, all the wealth, all that I've acquired, how can I really truly pass that on to somebody else? And we see that when Solomon dies and moves off the scene, the kingdom divides. And it's split between Jeroboam, the son of of Nebat, who takes the northern kingdoms away, and then Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, who remains with really uh, the area of Judah in southern Israel. So we have this north-south divide. So looking at the northern kingdoms, Jeroboam, again, the Lord sets him up and allows him to become, to become king, but fearful that the people would start to head back down south, he ends up establishing places of worship in Dan, right at the top of Israel, uh, and also in Bethel. Um, these two places become uh, uh, places of idolatry. Well, his son comes to the throne, but only for a short time. And then we go down, various dynasties take over. We get to this individual, Omri. His son, Ahab, uh, becomes very significant, particularly in the reign and the time of the ministry of Elijah. Um, it's during that time that Elijah has his confrontation with the prophets of Baal um, on uh, Mount Carmel. And then we find um, we have uh, effectively his son, uh, in fact two sons. We also have uh, a queen in the, nor- uh, in the northern kingdom as a result of this as well, Athaliah. Um, but Elisha follows on this time. 
We then get to the dynasty of Jehu. Now the Lord has said to Jehu, if he were to destroy and get rid of Ahab's family, um, then he would have children that would sit on the throne to the fourth generation. Now that's exactly what happens. The Lord's faithful in his promise, but Jehu is not faithful. Nevertheless, we have four of his descendants that end up sitting on the throne, albeit this is Zechariah here for only just six months. And then another change of dynasty and so on. And this, this last portion, as we'll look in a short while, is a very turbulent time. But it's in this period of time that these prophets that we're looking at this morning primarily are going to be speaking. So Hosea and Amos were speaking primarily to the northern kingdom during this period of history. Now, if we look at the same thing from the southern kingdom's perspective, we have Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, and then all of this line is just one family line. It's the line of David that will eventually go all the way down to the Messiah. The green kings that are highlighted here, you can see five of them. They were the good kings. They were the kings that were obedient, that were faithful to God. Even some of those went astray at the end of their lives. Um, So just because they were good for most of their reign, um, the real challenge is finishing well. Paul himself in the New Testament makes an allusion to the fact that you know, even after doing all these things for others, there's that possibility that I might miss out on the rewards and the blessings that God has for me. Um, but again, this line comes down, and we're now looking again this period of time. Uh, Hosea and Amos would have known Isaiah. Uh, they'd have been around at the same time. Um, uh, Mike also will be looking at uh, next time. Uh, again, this whole period of time really taking us up to the time when the northern kingdom goes into captivity, around about 722 BC. Uh, King Hezekiah was on the throne in the south. So that's that section that we're really looking at uh, this morning from these pro- prophets. So we're going to start by having a look at the book of Hosea, the prophet Hosea. Now, He's been referred to by uh, commentators as the loving prophet or the Jeremiah of the north. We went through Jeremiah a few weeks back and we saw how Jeremiah had such a heart, such a passion um, for the things of God and to see the people repent and turn back to God. Well, Hosea very much the same, but speaking to the northern kingdom. Interestingly, he's quoted more than 30 times in the New Testament. That's more than any other minor prophet, as it were. So out of these last 12 books of the Old Testament, Hosea is quoted more in the New Testament than any of them. A man called George Robinson said this, In all the world's literature, there is no record of human love like that of Hosea. And you'll see why as we look at this. G. Campbell Morgan, some of you may be familiar with, um, he said this, We have in the book of Hosea one of the most arresting revelations of the real nature of sin. And one of the clearest interpretations of the strength of the divine love. No one can read the story of Hosea without realizing the agony of his heart and then lift the human to the level of the infinite and know this, that sin wounds the heart of God. Incredible statement, but we see that as we we study this book. In uh, the great book by Henrietta C. Mears, What the Bible is All About, she just gives this summary. Uh, Hosea is one of the greatest lovers in all literature. We find his love so strong that even the worst actions of an unfaithful wife could not kill it. So, as we said, just looking at the time of these things, it was really following on from the golden age of Jeroboam II. Um, And there was this sort of dark cloud, if you like, hanging over the nation of Israel. But when Jeroboam dies, then six kings follow in quick succession with 24 years, four of those were assassinated. And midway through 
Hosea's ministry, a large part of the nation were carried away by the Assyrians. And by the end of his life, the kingdom of Israel came to an end with the fall of Samaria. Again, this final siege by the, the Assyrians, and they carried uh, the northern kingdom away captive. And Hosea obviously lived to see his own, or some of his own, prophecies actually fulfilled. <clears throat> so... What's the, the story of the book or, or the, the, the picture we have here? Well, Hosea is told of God to go and marry a wife of whoredoms, a prostitute, effectively. And so he ends up marrying this lady called Goma. They have three children together. Now, the book really plays out very much around the names that God says to Hosea that they need to give to these children. The first child is Jezreel. Now, that simply means it has, it's a double meaning. It means God scatters and God sows. So it's a double meaning, the name Jezreel. And we'll see how it's applied in the text. The second child is this uh, Lo Ruhama. So if you're thinking of having your baby and you're short of children's names, you probably won't find this in the baby names book, but it's a good one. Uh, Lo Ruhama, it simply means no mercy. And then we have Lo Ami. And that name simply means, you are not my people. And God instructs Hosea to name these children such, to be a witness and a testimony to the nation, as you'll see. Now, we find also in the the book of Hosea that God lists Israel's sins. Falsehood being one of them. Licentiousness. Murder. Robbery. Oppression. Now, it sounds very much like the days we live in, doesn't it? But this is what God was saying of the nation of Israel, a nation that should not have been like this. In a sense, the days we live in, the world around us, this is what you kind of expect. But you don't expect this from God's people. And the problem was that God's people had become so much like the world that it was hard to tell them apart. It's sad that so often Christians can end up falling into that trap, that we become so much like the world. We want to blend in, we don't want to offend people, and all those kind of excuses that we put on. But actually, so often what happens is we just simply allow our witness to be watered down. So God effectively is going to judge Israel because of these things. And this is what Hosea will bring. Now, there's going to be a number of uh, uh, idioms kind of that God will use, examples um, that God will use to try and illustrate to Israel just what they're like. And the first one is this adulterous wife. That Israel are like uh, the wife of Jehovah. But they've gone away. They've followed after other idols, other gods, gods that can't satisfy, gods that really are nothing at all. Isaiah, Isaiah pokes fun at those gods. You know, they can't breathe, they can't stand up, they can't hear, they can't talk, they can't smell. Another figure that's used is a, a wine-inflamed drunkard. And God says to Israel, that's just what you're like. You know, you've lost the ability to think rationally. Backsliding heifer. Is another thing that's used as a troop of robbers, again, as adulterers themselves, as hot as an oven, a cake not turned. That's a kind of a, when you've done baking, it's kind of, you know, it's not cooked properly. Like a silly dove is another uh, one that's used, and uh, like a deceitful covenant, and then finally, as a wild ass. So a number of different figures that are used throughout this book to try and get across to Israel just what they were like to God. You know, often we have our own view of ourselves. But this is what God is saying that Israel were like to him. Now, 
The key verses really that sum up so much of this book, uh, in chapter 14, verse 1, we read, O Israel, return unto Jehovah thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. In verse 4 it carries on, it says, I will heal their backslidings, I will love them freely. An incredible statement, even though all of these things Israel had got into, and even because of their iniquity, God calls them to repent and to return, and promises to heal them. Return, incidentally, is the kind of the key word. It's used 15 times, and also whoredom is used 16 times, uh, referring again not only to Israel's immorality, but also to unfaithfulness to God. So all of those things encapsulated. So those really those two words really sum up the whole theme of this book. Now, to give you a kind of a breakdown of the book itself, in the first chapter, the first nine verses, we see Hosea's call and that God is rejecting Israel. And this is what Hosea is called to tell the nation. And then we see the promised restoration. It's interesting how quickly, after the Lord saying he's going to reject the nation, immediately we see these promises of restoration. It's very much the same as you look at Deuteronomy 28, another incredible chapter in scripture that speaks of God's judgment on the nation. You haven't got to read on very far before all of a sudden you find God's promises of restoration. But then... In chapter 2, from verse 2 to 13, you see God's warning against Israel's unfaithfulness and the judgments that are prophesied. So in a sense, the first two sections of the book in chapter 1, it's really the summary. And then it starts to break it down in chapter 2, from verse 2 onwards. And it starts to speak of these judgments that are prophesied. But then again, speaking of a future blessing for the nation in chapter 2, 14 to 23. Chapter 3, it really deals there with the redemption of Hosea's wife. He's told to go and take her back again. After she's been unfaithful and she's gone away, he's told to go and bring her home and to bring her back. And of course that speaks of God's love for the nation of Israel, that God were to do exactly the same thing with the nation of Israel. And then from chapter 4 through 10, what we're going to have detailed there is God's controversy with his people. God, in a sense, lists out all of the the problems, all the things, uh, the reasons why judgment was coming upon them. And then finally, uh, in wrath, God remembers mercy. And so we see that playing out. And then finally, last chapter is chapter 14. Israel are urged to repent and enjoy the blessings. You know, it's incredible. The blessings are there from the start. Again, Deuteronomy 28, the first 15 verses or so, just speak of the blessings. It's there. The rest of that long chapter is all about the curses, the things that would come on if they don't obey. The question is, why don't we just do the things that God says we should do and enjoy the blessings right now? Of course, we have this kind of twisted human nature, this iniquity as a result of the fall and so on uh, that just keeps us from these things. Let's just look at some of the verses as we go through as a brief summary. So in chapter 1, verse 5, we just read there, It shall come to pass at that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now there's arguably two understandings of this. Of course the bow can symbolise, as you would think of a bow and an arrow, it can imply the military strength of Israel. Um, But I think more than that, the bow is a symbol of a covenant. Cast your mind back to Genesis chapter 9 verse 13, where the Lord says he will put his bow in the sky. What about Revelation 6 verse 2, where we find the one who is coming to establish this covenant with Israel for seven years... He comes to bring this, he's pictured as coming with a bow. It's because he's bringing a covenant of peace. So I think what we're seeing here is that God is breaking the covenant made with Israel. That covenant was broken 
effectively the valley of Jezreel, which is again where the Assyrians came upon the nation. And notice Jezreel means to scatter. So the first part of that name is being prophetically fulfilled here. And from here, as I said, Israel was scattered among the nations, first to Assyria and then global dispersion for the northern kingdom and for the Jews that were there at this time. Now, just to highlight this, there's three major covenants that we need to be aware of in Scripture. There's God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. And that simply says, in his seed all nations shall be blessed. But it's also a covenant of the land that was granted to Abraham and his descendants. And notice, this dispute at the moment in the Middle East about the land. The land is not Israel's, it's God's. And God is the one who has given it to Israel. But God has never relinquished the ownership of that land. It's God's land. And he's allowed Israel to have it. And the covenant with Israel that we read about in Deuteronomy 28 is simply a a covenant where they're told that if they faithfully serve and obey him, they'll be prospered. But if they don't and they forsake him, they'll be punished. And then the final covenant to be aware of is the covenant in 2 Samuel 7, a covenant that God makes with David, which is specifically that his family would be the ones through whom the Messiah would come. And the Messiah would then continue this dynasty of David for eternity. That David would forever have somebody to reign on the throne. Just look in 2 Samuel 7 sometime and just mark the number of times you see the word forever. Because very clear about these things. Now, what we need to understand is that the first covenant and the last covenant there are unconditional. The second covenant is conditional. And it's that second covenant that is being referred to here in the book of Hosea. That God has said, if you don't obey me, then you will be judged. You will be taken out of your land. You'll be punished. But God makes it clear they will also be brought back. So we need to understand that that covenant regarding the land, that in Abraham, this blessing would come to the world, that was unconditional. The covenant regarding David's descendants was unconditional. But there was a condition placed upon that one, the Mosaic Covenant, as it's sometimes referred to. Picking up in verse 10 of chapter 1. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it is said unto them, You are not my people. Recognize the name there? There it shall be said to them, You are the sons of the living God. Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head and they shall come up out of the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. So now we see Jezreel meaning to gather. So these children's names again playing into God's prophetic message to the nation. Chapter 2 speaks of the restoration of Israel and there we see in chapter in verse 23 and I will sow her unto me in the earth and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. Do you remember we have uh, this Lohama, this child who's named No Mercy. And God is saying that I will have mercy on the one that was named No Mercy. And I will say to them, which were not my people, Lo Ami, this other child, means you are not my people. That thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. So though Israel had forfeited the Mosaic covenant and the blessings that were there through their disobedience, yeah. God, through his faithfulness, had promised that they would be restored. Now that, by the way, is the part of scripture that Islam and those within the church that embrace this nonsense of replacement theology have completely missed. 
You see, Islam accept that the land was Israel's. They accept that Israel was God cho- God's chosen people. They don't question that. What they challenge is that God has still a future purpose for Israel. They argue that because of Israel's unfaithfulness, and because of the fact they broke the covenant that Moses had established, that God had established through Moses, because of that, they have totally blown and forfeited any right they had to the land. That's the position of Islam. And effectively, it's the same position held by replacement theology. It's the position held by the Catholic Church and many in the Anglican Church and so on in this country. And you should start to see how easy it is for these groups of people to start to work together because so much of their theology is the same. But God makes it very clear. Israel will be restored. God has said that to those who were saying they were not his people, they would once again become his people. He would be their God. In chapter 3 we read of the restoration of the monarchy. For the children of Israel should abide many days without a king. Well, from the time of Zedekiah, the last king of the southern kingdom of Judah, there was no king to sit on the throne of the nation. Even when they came back from Babylon, although there was somebody of that line amongst those that came back, he wasn't appointed as king, just as governor. And that goes all the way up until the time of Christ. No Jewish king sitting on the throne. The children of Israel, the people of Israel, tried to enthrone Jesus after the feeding of the 5,000. They wanted to make him their king. But Jesus effectively says, no, it's not the right time. Because Jesus had to go away. And we read here, there shall be without a king, without a prince, without a sacrifice. That sacrificial system has been taken away from Israel for now. And without an image, without an ephod, without a teraphim. But then we're told, afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. So again, the incredible thing is that word though that we read there. For the children of Israel shall abide. So the miracle is that Israel have abided. They still exist as an identifiable ethnic group of people. You know, you think of any other culture in and around the world at that time. You know, how many Phoenicians or Philistines or Amorites or whatever do you meet today? And yet Israel have survived, even though they've been dispersed around the world. The incredible thing is that Israel have abided. They've remained. Of course, the challenge from Islam today is that they don't want to see Israel abiding. And Hamas and these other organizations They just want to see the destruction of Israel. I was talking to some Muslims at work and um, they were kind of trying to deny this. So I just simply read to them from the Hamas Charter. And Hamas Charter makes it really, really clear. They just want to see Israel destroyed. Totally. And then they can see, well, yeah, okay, that's what they do believe. It's like, yeah, I know. And that's what Islam itself wants. You know, you won't find on any Arab map Israel. It's just not there. They don't recognize the state of Israel. They don't recognize the existence of them. Notice as well that David, their king, is to be raised up. And then again, just as we see with Job, Job made this wonderful statement of faith that, you know, in the latter days, in my flesh, I shall see God. That it will stand on the earth. Well, David also is going to be resurrected. And scripture alludes to the fact that David will be given this position of ruling over the house of Israel once again. Chapter 4 deals with the root of the problem. And it's simply this, that my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. 
Because they have rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. And thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God. I will also forget thy children. It's interesting that the lack of knowledge led to the fall. You see, when Eve was in the garden, you remember the situation? That Satan comes up to her and tempts her. Did God really say? Now if you're sure of the position, the answer is clear. Because it's yes, God said this. I know God's word. This is why David says in Psalm 119, Your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. If you know God's word, you're far less likely to fall through a lack of knowledge. You see, Eve hadn't been properly taught. You know, if you look at Genesis, you'll notice that when God gives this command about not eating from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Eve has not yet been created. That instruction is given to Adam. It was Adam's responsibility to teach his wife. There's a big study you can do in the whole area of the responsibility of a man within a Christian relationship, a Christian family. Again, the question and challenge to us this morning is, do we know the promises and the commandments of God? You know, are we liable to be destroyed for lack of knowledge? You know, the way around that is, as we said, as David says, to know God's word. Hide God's word in our heart. Chapter 5, we see an incredible prerequisite for the return of Christ. And this is another reason while Satan, or why Satan is so intent of using anybody he can to destroy Israel. Because we read in verse 15, I will go and return to my place. This is God speaking. Now, for God to return to his place, he must have left it. When did God leave his place? Well, in the person of Jesus Christ. When Jesus came and was born of a virgin. When he came to this world as a man. And he said, I will go and return to my place until they acknowledge their offense. And seek my face. In their affliction, that word affliction we see throughout scripture has this connotation and reference to the time of tribulation that's coming on Israel and the world. But in Israel's affliction, we're told that they will seek me early or earnestly is the implication. This is an incredible statement. Because we see this until. God's going to return to his place until they acknowledge their offense. Now, if Israel were to be destroyed, they could never acknowledge their offense. So we have to have a national Israel in existence for Jesus Christ to return. This is quite a statement. And of course, this gives us a reason and understanding of why there is so much anti-Semitism in the world. Because if Satan can destroy Israel, then, well, God has placed it here in the text for us, that he won't return until they acknowledge their offense. Israel will finally see, understand. And they will petition Jesus, their Messiah. And we'll look at this in a few weeks' time as we look into Zechariah. And again, that will be at the same time that the fullness of the Gentiles are gathered in. We'll look at that when we get to the book of Revelation in chapter 16. When all the Gentiles are finally brought in. There will be no more Gentiles saved. And from that point, the fullness of the Gentiles will be gathered in and Israel's eyes will be opened. Chapter 6, it carries on, and this is an incredible verse. It says, Come, let us return unto the Lord, for he has torn us, and he will heal us. He is smitten, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. In the third day, he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. Now, it's interesting here, because are these days that are referred to literal 24-hour days? 
Tim LaHaye, great Bible commentator and scholar, suggests they are. And they may well be, but there could also be a double reference here. Because if we ask the question, how long will Israel live in his sight? Well, from the point that they're restored, arguably you could say throughout the millennium for a thousand years. That's certainly a valid understanding of the text here. Now, if they are to live in his sight for a thousand years, and that would equate to one day, well, you could also then argue that the two days could also equate to periods of a thousand years. Now, I just put this forward as something that's interesting. I'm not into date setting or anything like that. Because you still need to know the starting point, which is something that would be open to conjecture. But if the third day is a thousand years, then we must be approaching the end of the second day about now. Well, isn't it interesting that we see all of these things gearing up? The world is positioning itself for the fulfillment of so many of these prophecies. Maybe an implication there that we really are right on the brink of the Lord's return. Of this moment when Israel will repent and the Lord will return and establish his kingdom. Just an interesting thought. Don't make doctrine of that. But it's just an interesting aside. Chapter 8 we get into an interesting kind of comment of the between now and then. Because we've had a, this is how it is, this is how it's going to be. But chapter 8, what we read is, Israel is swallowed up. Now shall they be among the Gentiles as a vessel wherein is no pleasure. Can you think of a better summary of the history of Israel through this interim period? I mean, this prophecy has been fulfilled in dramatic fashion. Because the Gentiles whom Israel have been scattered amongst find no pleasure in Israel. All the controversy that we're reading about on the news at the moment, even Israel's allies are seemingly against her. It was encouraging to hear David Cameron's comments this week. But it's very rare that anybody comes out in support of Israel. Chapter 10, we have this reference to Israel being a vine. Israel is an empty vine. He brings forth fruit unto himself. In other words, that which Israel was bringing forth wasn't that which God had intended. And it's interesting because Israel was to be a vine that was to bring was refreshing and knowledge of God to the world. This is part of their mission that they've been given by God. But Satan counters all of this with the vine of the earth that we read about in Revelation 14. And that began in Babylon. It was a false religious system that's come all the way down the corridors of time, embracing pretty much every false religion you could look at, to try and draw people away from the knowledge of God. But there's a third vine that we read of in Scripture. Israel are one vine. We have the vine of the earth. The third vine we read about in the Gospel of John. John 15 verse 1. Then Jesus comes and said, I am the true vine. And Jesus is the one then who comes to really truly bring the knowledge of God. Israel didn't do that which it was called to do. Satan is trying desperately to lead people away from God. But Jesus comes as the true vine to lead people to God. Chapter 12, we have a very interesting scripture that's just worth making note of. Verse 10, I have spoken by the prophets and I have multiplied visions and used similitudes. This is interesting. Uh, by the ministry of the prophets. The whole situation, Adam and Eve, we, we could spend hours on these things. Just a couple of highlights. In First Timothy, we're told that, it, that Adam was not deceived. That's an incredible statement. It means that Adam ate of the fruit willingly and knowingly. Why? Because he recognized that his bride was now in this condition. The only way of saving his bride was to enter into the realm that she was now in which meant giving up his own position, his own life, to save her. 
What an incredible picture of what Christ has done. The situation, of course, with Abraham and Isaac, the type of the father and the type of the son. We could spend hours on these things. Joseph, there's over a hundred different ways that we can see he's a type of Christ. He was rejected by his brothers. He was exalted eventually to the highest place. Jonah, Jesus himself alludes to this, three days, three nights. There's other ways as well. The seven feasts of Israel, they also all point this similitude that God says he's used. These ways of depicting another event that's yet to come. It's a little bit like a, a model that's built in anticipation of the real building going up. You build a model to see what the, the real thing is going to look like. Well, God, through Scripture, has given us these similitudes, these models, these types, that all point to the ultimate fulfillment through Jesus. Interesting that in Colossians chapter 2, Paul says there, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or in the, uh, of new moon or of Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come. But the body or the fulfillment or the substance is of Christ. That's what Paul is saying. So these things like the holy days, when you talk about holidays, that comes from holy day. These feast days that have been established for the nation of Israel. All of those feast days were just a shadow. The fulfillment was in Jesus Christ. Now that leads us very nicely into the book of Joel. And don't worry, we're not going to spend as long on the book of Joel. Uh, There's only three chapters anyway. Hosea is the, the largest of these books that we were reviewing this morning. These ones, we're just going to have a quick cursory overview just to whet your appetite. But Joel, well, he's introduced as the son of Pethuel. We don't really know much about him other than this. His name, we do know, means Jehovah is God. He's been called by some the John the Baptist of the Old Testament. The key phrase in the book that repeats over and over is the day of the Lord. It's speaking of this time of judgment that's yet coming. Five times we find that mentioned. And interestingly, that he seems to be the earliest of the writing prophets. Now, we looked at the start of the kind of time frame. Well, Joel seems to predate all of that. We're not given the specific time. There's no allusion to the kings that were on the throne when he was speaking. It seems to be very early on in the nation's history. <clears throat> Let me just read this to you by Montague S. Mills. He said, Joel was probably the first of the so-called writing prophets. Okay, so let me just clarify this. So we're talking about prophets that wrote down the things that God was saying. We've got obviously many other prophets through uh, scripture that we don't have record of necessarily the books they wrote or the things they said. But here we have Joel actually writing down these things. So seemingly the first of the ones to actually start to write down what he was saying. So this book provides a valuable insight into the history of prophecy, particularly as it furnishes a framework for the end times, which is faithfully followed in all subsequent scripture. God started a new work with the writing of Joel, that of preparing the human race for the end of this temporal era, and thus gave the, an outline of his total plan. Later prophets, including even our Lord, would only flesh out this outline. But in keeping with the divine nature of true scripture, never found it necessary to deviate from this, the initial revelation. It makes this book really quite significant that God is giving us here for the first time in scripture. And of course we don't have everything laid out chronologically in the way the books are in the Bible we have. But this would have appeared kind of the first time that God is revealing to the human race his plan. Now what's incredible is if we start to look at the breakdown of this, as we'll do in just a moment. First, let me just give you the outline. We've got this plague of locusts. This is what Jared referred to in a short while ago, looking at our verse for the week. This was a real 
plague of locusts that will cause havoc in the land. But there's also a prophetic edge to this as well. It's very clear from the text. Then there's a description of an enemy invasion in chapter 2. There's a divine appeal to Judah to repent. And there's a direct declaration of a fast. And then finally, divine deliverance is promised. So that's kind of the breakdown of the things that we have in the text here. But what's really fascinating is when we look at this in connection with the feasts of Israel. Now, with the first three feasts, Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, were all prophetically fulfilled during Passion Week. Jesus came as our Passover. On the 14th, in fact, on the 10th day of the month, the Jews were to take a lamb. And they were to keep it until the 14th day of the month. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the 10th day of the month. And on the 14th day of the month, as our Passover, he sacrificed for us. As it turns to evening, the very next day, the 15th of the month, just as the Jews were starting their celebration, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, so Jesus' body is placed in the ground. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. And Jesus died to become the first fruits of all those who would follow on after, who would put their trust in him. And then on the day following the Sabbath, the Saturday Sabbath, which would always be a Sunday, that's when in, the Israel, in Israel's calendar the Feast of First Fruits would occur. Well, during Passion Week, on the Feast of First Fruits, on that very day, Jesus rises from the dead as the first fruits. Incredible, pr- dramatic fulfillment. The Feast of Weeks we're familiar with, of course, is Pentecost. That's 50 days after. That's why we have this Pente bit, meaning five. 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits, we have the Feast of Weeks. And this celebration, of course, we recognize because we're told very clearly in the New Testament that we have the kind of f- prophetic fulfillment. In fact, we read in the book of Acts, when the day of Pentecost, when the Feast of Weeks, this, this celebration, was fully come, when it had finally got in, the real reason for this celebration. And so that's the fulfillment. But then we move to the last three feasts, the Feast of Trumpets, Atonement and Tabernacles. Incredibly, these seem to be outlined prophetically in the book of Joel. When we look at this, you'll see a preponderance of trumpets in the book of Joel. Now, if you read the book of Revelation in chapter 8 and 9, you'll find that we have seven trumpets specifically blown there. If you look at the judgments, if you look at the things that come upon the world, you'll recognize an incredible similarity between the two. This fire, again, symbolizing judgment, that's part of the feast of trumpets. And again, very symbolic of these things that will occur during the tribulation time. Seemingly that first section from Joel chapter 1 up to chapter 2 verse 11 depicts this whole kind of fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets prophetically. We then, the next feast is the Feast of Atonement. And from Joel chapter 2 verse 12, there's a shift in the ideas in the theme. And the whole thing shifts to this repentance and reconciliation. But interestingly enough, as part of the Feast of Atonement, a scapegoat would flee to the wilderness. Well, in Revelation 12, we find that Israel will flee to the wilderness to escape Antichrist during the tribulation time. Again, this whole idea that during this time will come this repentance and reconciliation. Whilst Israel are away and hiding, this is the point we were talking about in Hosea, where they will finally cry out in their affliction. And then we get the Feast of Tabernacles. Joel chapter 3 details this for us and Revelation 16 and 19 all speak of this kind of ingathering of the nation 
Matthew 24 speaks of the Jews, and be very clear in Matthew 24 of the context, he's not talking about the church, he's talking about the Jews being gathered from the four winds of the earth, from the cardinal points, north, south, east and west, west, brought back to the land and dwelling together in unity. God tabernacling amongst them, dwelling amongst them as we move into that millennial kingdom. I'll let you take and study that on your own. Just a couple of things I want to draw your attention to in the book of Joel. In chapter 2, God says, verse 25, I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten, the cankerworm, the caterpillar, the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. And you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God. He has dealt wondrously with you. My people should never be ashamed. And you should know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and none else of my people shall never be ashamed. What a great statement. This is your verse for the week that Jared shared with you earlier. That Israel are not to be abandoned. <clears throat> of course, we recognize this verse from the book of Acts. It shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord God, of the Lord come. So again, prophetically looking forward to these things. Now, Joel 3, interesting, the first two verses. We read there, For behold, in those days, at that time, when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. Well, we're living in those days, you and I right now. And God says, I will also gather all nations. I will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, I believe this is talking of this time of, we would refer to as Armageddon, when the nations of the world will gather together. But notice what God says. And I will plead with them there for, for my people, for my heritage, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. What a dramatic fulfillment we've seen of that. And, notice what else, and parted my land. Well, look at the land of Israel. Go back to 1917, the Balfour Declaration, and all the way through history, since that point really, how the land of Israel has been divided up. And we have, of course, the, the roadmap to peace, one of these things that came in, of how this land could be petitioned. But notice whose land it is. God says, parted my land. I just want to share something with you I think is very fascinating in the book of Joel. Because in the midst of this trouble they're going through, in the midst of this kind of tribulation period in chapter 2, we read this, blow the trumpet in Zion. Where is Zion? Well, Zion can be Jerusalem. It's one of the references for Zion. But it could also be heaven, the throne of the great king, the king of kings. So Zion can be inscription. Sometimes it's used, in fact, more often than not, it's used as a reference of heaven. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Interesting use of the word elders. We find elders also mentioned in the book of Revelation, chapter 4. Those who are saved, who are redeemed, washed by the blood of the Lamb, gathered around the throne. Well, in Joel, we're told that if this is the case, that... Uh, this situation occurs in heaven, there's a blowing of a trumpet, there's a gathering together. Well, isn't that interesting? Think of First Thessalonians 4. Blowing of a trumpet, called to gather together. And then those in heaven are being gathered together. You have the children and those that suck the breasts, and then let the bridegroom 
Well, who else can that be other than the Saviour, other than Jesus? Go forth out of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. It almost implies something that's not the natural way, the normal way of, of, of doing these things. It's almost an interruption to this wedding celebration, possibly. But then look what we're told. Let the priest and ministers of the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare thy people. O Lord, and give not thy heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Now, the use of the words here grammatically would imply that those that are praying this are not the Jews themselves. This would seem to be another group of people in heaven that are pleading on behalf of Israel at the time the nations are gathering together against them. Spare thy people, O Lord. Give not thine heritage uh, to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, where is their God? And notice the response of God in, 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 uh, the response of God in response to this prayer. Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. I just put this forward as a suggestion. Because I think this is a scene that we're getting of something that will yet occur in heaven. When the church, after the rapture, before the throne, will be called upon to petition for the nation of Israel during the tribulation. I'll just leave you to take that away and come to your own conclusions. Let's move off into the book of Amos. Just a brief summary here. Well, William MacDonald says this. He says, The book of Amos is written in some of the finest Old Testament Hebrew style. Amos was a sheep breeder and tender of sycamore trees. Perhaps he illustrates the appearance of God-ordained men throughout history who speak very effectively and even beautifully for the Lord without the traditional school of the prophets background or formal education so much sought after today. You know, Amos is the kind of you and I kind of character. Amos didn't go to theological seminary. He wasn't, you know, didn't have all these numbers and letters and degrees and all sorts of other things. He was just somebody that God called and used. But it's great that we find people like that in scripture. In the first two chapters, Amos pronounces judgment against eight nations. We'll look at that in just a moment. Again, William MacDonald says this, Each pronouncement of judgment is introduced by the words, For three transgressions and for four. And Baxter explains this Hebrew idiom for us. The phrase is not to be taken uh, arithmetically, so we're not adding it up as such, uh, to mean a literal three, then four. But idiomatically, as meaning the measure was full, more than full. The sin of these people had overreached itself, or to put it, in an allowable bit of modern slang, they had gone one too many, or they tipped the scale. And so God is saying, of these nations that are listed in the book of Amos, that, okay, you've gone too far, and God is going to bring judgment. The outline, we find this judgment of these eight nations in the first two chapters, then the guilt and punishment of Israel in the next few chapters up to chapter 6, and then the symbols of approaching, approaching judgment and then finally, the restoration of Israel is prophesied once again. It's interesting because we have these nations that God foretells judgment on. Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, which is Phoenicia, Edom, Ammon and Moab. And just in case Israel were getting comfortable as they're looking on God speaking of judging all their enemies, suddenly God then speaks of the judgment on Judah. You know, there's a lesson for us because sometimes we look at other people and we would criticize what they do and the things that they allow or don't allow. And suddenly God turns and points the finger at us. I heard somebody say the other day, whenever you point at somebody, remember you've got three fingers still pointing at yourself. I think that's quite a, quite a good uh, summary of that one. Because you know, it's so easy to see the fault in somebody else. 
the speck in your brother's eye and ignore the plank that's in your own. And Israel were very much in that predicament and position here. The words of Amos, who was among the Hermon of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. There was this big earthquake in Israel at this time. And he said, the Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the inhabitants of the shepherds shall mourn, and the top of Carmel shall wither. Look at this. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, Syria to you and I, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing instruments of iron. Now there's historical context to this, but it's also prophetic. But I will send fire into the house of Hazor, which shall devour the places of Ben-Hadid. I will break also the bars of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the plain of Avon, even him that holds a scepter from the house of Eden. And from the people of Syria shall go into captivity unto curse, says the Lord. We can spend quite a lot of time on this because look at what's going on in Syria. If you do a study of this text, look at the support that, Israel, that um, Syria is getting from Iran and Iraq, which seemingly was that area of Eden. Because God passed the garden westward of Eden. Of course, this was before the flood. The geography changed since. But there's a lot of interesting overtones. But let me just take you through to the next section. Because then we're told, Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Gaza. Interesting, isn't it? And for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they carried away captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. Now, there's an historical component, of course. This is what happened. But then look, verse 7, I will send a fire on the wall of Gaza, which shall devour the palaces thereof. And I will cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod, and him that holds a scepter from Ashkelon, I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. It's interesting, we've got a bunch of people that call themselves Palestinians. The name Palestinian was given to the land in 132 AD by the Emperor Hadrian who wanted to rename it after Israel's ancient enemies just simply to annoy Israel and there are many people that are wanting to claim today that they are descendants in the sense of that and God is saying he's going to cut off the remnant of the Philistines and speaks of this judgment coming upon Gaza sending fire upon them I'll just leave that with you I just think it's quite provocative given the news that we're hearing at the moment and what God seemingly is doing in the world scene Amos 3 verse 3 and 4 God says there can two walk together except they be agreed now of course we use this in various contexts particularly in regard to relationships and marriage and so on and it's applicable of course but what about our own lives our own walk with God can we walk with God unless we really are in agreement can we allow sin in our lives however small jealousy, hurt, anger, bitterness whatever Unless we really are in a place where we've repented of those things. Can we say we walk with God? You know, we often ask each other, how are you doing? And we give us that, you know, I'm fine, thank you. We all know we're lying, because we never are, are we? There's always other things, there's things that are going on, there's things that, in all honesty, we say, well, actually, you know what, I really appreciate prayer for this. That's what we should be doing, praying for each other, bringing each other before the throne, bearing each other's burdens. We go through most of our days with this kind of like, I don't have any burdens, I'm fine. It's not true, is it? We know it's not true. But it's verse 4, though. Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? 
What's it saying? Well, you think of a lion approaching its prey, that which it's about to attack and have for dinner. Is the lion going to roar and say, ah, goat, gazelle, zebra, whatever, I'm here? No, he's going to sneak up very stealthily. The roar will happen afterwards. The idea of this is, you know, you could be in a position where you're not where you should be with God. And you might say, but it's okay, God's blessing me, everything's going well. Yeah, because judgment's not going to come announced. God is saying that judgment will come and through the rest of God's word he makes it clear. That if we persist in iniquity and things in our life that shouldn't be there, it will come upon us suddenly. Just as this example, you're not going to have an announcement. So just because things might seem to be going well, if you're not walking in agreement with God, you're just like that zebra who the, de- the, the, the lion is uh, waiting to pounce upon. Verse 7 of Amos 3. Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he reveals his secret unto his servants, the prophets. No need for much comment other than to say everything that we need to know is revealed already. God's prophets have already shown us all these things. This is why we need to study the word. And then in chapter 9, just one more scripture from uh, Amos. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper. And the treader of grapes, him that sows seed. And the mountains shall drop sweet wine. And all the hills shall melt. And notice this. What a great celebration. And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel. And they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. And shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them upon their land. And they shall no more be pulled up out of their land. Which I have given them. This is the Lord thy God. Just a wonderful declaration of God's faithfulness. And of course that has to be after AD 70 because of the context that is given here. It's not referencing the Babylonian uh, captivity return from Babylon. This is talking about something that the Lord will do in the latter days. So the book of Obadiah, very short, just one chapter. The whole book really focuses on the judgment on Edom. And we have 12 men in scripture that have this name, but we can't necessarily link this book to any one of them. We don't know much about this individual at all. Uh, Obadiah means servant of Jehovah. Time of writing would have been soon after 587. So again, we looked at that time earlier. This is kind of right at the end of all of the kings. So this is after Zedekiah and the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. Shortly afterwards is when this book would have been written. And the theme, as I say, is the destruction of Edom. Edom, again, descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. And they've continually been unkind to Israel throughout their history. And even seizing the opportunity during the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem to launch their own attacks. They really kind of put the boot in. One commentator says this, The prophecy of Obadiah is unique in the character of its contents. It is a book of unmitigated condemnation unrelieved by any suggestion of compassion or hope. It's quite strange in a sense. We have this book, there is no mention of, you know, but after all of this then. It's just a book that speaks of God's judgment. The outline for you. The first four verses, we see Edom's pride to be abased. Then the destruction of Edom itself. The completeness of the plunder against them. The betrayal of Edom's allies. The destruction of Edom's leaders, the reasons 
uh, stated again for Edom's downfall. And then Edom's uh, judgment is uh, retributive. It's because of the things they have done. So it's payback time, effectively. And the restoration of Israel and Judah and extinction, extinction of Edom. Just a couple of verses to read then, and then we close. For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. In the day that thou stood on the other side, in the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces. This is speaking of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian conquest. And foreigners entered into his gates and cast lots upon Jerusalem. Even thou was one of them. So when all this was going on, and these other nations, and particularly Babylon, were coming and taking plunder, rather than seeing if there's anything to do to help their brother, well, they also got involved against Israel. And in verse 15 and 17, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen, as thou hast done. It shall be done unto thee, speaking of Edom, and thy reward shall return upon thine own head. Again, payback time. But verse 17, very interesting. But upon Mount Zion, now this reference here is to Jerusalem, to the literal place on earth. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness. And then look, the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. If you look at the area in scripture that Abraham is promised as the land of Israel, it stretches from the Mediterranean Sea to the river Euphrates. We're not specifically given the northern and southern perimeters. But interestingly, within that area, we have, of course, Edom and Moab and Ammon, all these kind of relatives of Israel that were given land. And the question, of course, is how are Israel going to have all of that land? If, if you remember when they went into the promised land, they were told not to touch Moab and Ammon and Edom. Well, as you look, this is the reference to Edom, but you'll find the reference to the other two also, that because of their iniquity and unfaithfulness, God will eventually give Israel their land. So when we get to the millennial kingdom, Israel will possess all of the land that God had promised to Abraham. And with that, we shall close. Next week, we'll pick up, read ahead, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and Habakkuk. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, we recognize that so often the problems we experience in our own lives are because we're not walking faithfully with you. So, Father, help us, Lord, as we've seen this morning, that we need to be walking together as two that are agreed. Father, help us to have the same verdict about sin in our own lives that you have. Help us to hate sin, to flee from it, Father, and to live lives that are pleasing and glorifying and honoring to you. Father, we see time and time again how Israel blew it because they didn't trust, they didn't walk, and Lord, you allowed the things to come upon them that you prophesied. But Father, all along there were blessings to be had if only they'd have been faithful. Father, help us to be obedient, to be faithful, to learn from these things and to grow in knowledge and grace. Father, we thank you that you have called us out of this world. Help us to be separate, we ask, in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. Amen.